0: Well, I'll tell you, that song makes you feel like you've been to church, doesn't it? God so loved the world, and amen, amen. Would you open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Luke, chapter number 12? Luke chapter 12, and we'll read our passage here in just a few moments. Luke chapter 12. Last Sunday evening, I brought a message entitled 23 Good Things About the Florence Baptist Temple. The way I got into that is I thought up about 12 things or so of my own that I had in mind that I thought about our church. And then I uh, talked to my little discipleship group, several guys that I meet with on Wednesday night trying to help them in their spiritual growth. And they ended up giving me, I think, eleven more things or twelve things that night that I had put on. I had not put on my list. So I ended up with twenty-three positive, good things about the Baptist Temple. And I just went over that little list briefly, each one of them, last Sunday night. Number four on that list was the stewardship life of this church, and this church is a strong church in stewardship. And God has just blessed us and opened the hearts of people. And they are generous with their time and with their money, with their hearts. Last year, 1,748 different people gave to the support of this church. So it's not a handful of people that support the church. And then hundreds more people serve in some capacity every week whether it be singing in the choir playing in the orchestra as you've just heard or ushering or teaching Sunday school classes or coaching kids in the sports ministry or uh, all the different facets here the technology the people doing tv and all of that hundreds of people serve faithfully year after year and week after week and without them the church would not have the ministry that it has of course now, two weeks ago, I brought a message called Seven Things About Stewardship That You Must Know. You must know. If you don't know these, you don't understand biblical stewardship. And I'll tell you how important stewardship is. Stewardship and sanctification are the two doctrines of the Christian faith. Stewardship, our responsibility, responsibility with our time, our talent, our treasure, our relationships with other people. And sanctification, living a godly, holy, pure life, those two areas begin at salvation and go all the way until they carry us out to the graveyard. That is the rest of the Christian life. You can put it under two headings. Everything in the Christian life from the moment you're saved until the time you die, either involves your stewardship or your sanctification. And that's just a real simple way to outline it in your mind. Now, when I spoke on this two weeks ago, I used the parable of the talents, where the man gave to one person five talents to another two, to another one, and what they did with that. I defined stewardship for you. I hope you remember the definition. A steward is a manager. Stewardship is managing the affairs of God in our life. Secondly, I talked about the foundation of stewardship and the very foundational part of stewardship. If you understand this, you'll get it. God owns it all and God gives it all, God owns everything. He owns the clothes on my back, the car that I rode over here in. He owns my children and my grandchildren. He owns my time. He owns my money and my bank account. He owns my home that I live in. He owns my wife. God owns it all, and he's allowed these things to come into my life. He has given them to me, given in quotes, but they will always truly and fully belong to him. I am to manage my family. I am to manage my time, my talent, my money, my relationships in life. The foundation of stewardship is one simple point. God owns it all, and God has given it all. Number three, we focus on stewardship. What is the focus of stewardship? It involves our time. It involves our talents and gifts and abilities. It involves our money And it involves the relationships that we have in life, whether good or bad. And then lastly, the accountability of stewardship. Because when we study the New Testament, we discover that we're all going to be accountable to the Lord for our time, our talent, our relationships. That there's going to be a day when we're all going to be called before the Master. And we're going to give an account of our stewardship on that day. And so today, and I quit, I stopped the message after four points. I said, seven things you know about, you must know about stewardship. But then I told you back then, I'm going to do four of them today, three of them in a couple weeks. So now today I'm going to do the last three. And here's the outline for today. I want to speak about the revelation of stewardship. What does stewardship reveal about a person? Secondly, the motivation for stewardship. Why would I be motivated to give my time, my talents, my whole life to the Lord Jesus Christ? What in the world could motivate that? What possible motivation is that strong for me? And then thirdly and lastly, I want to talk to you briefly about the one requirement for stewardship. What is the one thing that God absolutely requires for every human being in terms of our relationship with Him and stewardship? So today, the revelation of stewardship. And stewardship reveals to me much larger issues than just my time, my talent, my treasure. If you want to deal with it on a very superficial level, you can do so. But I'm going to tell you, where you are in your stewardship life is absolutely the most revealing thing about your life, your values what matters, what is your purpose in your existence. Stewardship reveals what I live my life for. What do you live your life for? Do you ever think about that? What is the reason to be? What's life's purpose? Stewardship reveals our values. What matters most to me? What is first of importance in my life? second importance, third importance. What's not important to me at all, but I live and do those things, but when you boil it all down, they're not really very important at all. Stewardship reveals that. Stewardship reveals the role of Jesus Christ in my life. How much does Jesus Christ mean to me, really? I mean, we give lip service. Oh, Jesus Christ, the Savior, He's the, he's the King of kings. He's the most important one. And, but then we'll walk out the door of the church and never even give thought to Him for hours and perhaps even days at a time. Probing question, how important is Jesus Christ in your life? What does He really mean to you, bottom line? Stewardship will tell you that, better than any other part of your life. Not going to church. Not your attendance record, as important as that is, but your attitude toward your time and your talents and gifts and abilities and opportunities that God has given you to serve and your money and even your relationships with other people. And stewardship just opens that up as if you could look right in a person's heart and see what is it that makes them tick. In the book of Luke, chapter 12, Jesus reveals all that very, very clearly to us. Chapter 12, the book of Luke, I'll begin reading in verse number 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, will you speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me? Uh Uh-oh, we've had a little family fight here over an inheritance, haven't we? And Jesus is standing by, and this man comes up and said, I want you to give me some help and convince my brother that he needs to divide that inheritance with me. He's not treating me right. This is not fair. And Jesus said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? In other words, Jesus said, I'm not getting into y'all's family squabble. I've had to say that a few times to church members. and It's never a winner. But uh, sometimes you just have to tell people, look, that's not my area. (laughs) You take care of that. In verse 15, Jesus said one other thing to him, though a parting word. Sir, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesseth. What a statement. Won't you take your pen and underline that verse, particularly the last part? A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And then Jesus said, let me tell you a story before you leave here because I want to illustrate my point to you. And he spake a parable unto them saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do because I have no room where I can bestow or store my fruits? I'm clear out of storage room here. He said, this will I do, I will pull down my barns, I will build larger barns, and there will I bestow all of my fruits and all of my goods, all of my wealth, if you will. will, And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry, kick back. You've earned it. You deserve it. Now, enjoy it. But, what a big word, but. But God said to him, thou fool, and God called the man a fool. Think about that. Thou fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And then, who shall all these things you're worried about storing in bigger barns be? And so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Boy, this passage is full of things for us to learn. Now, the man came asking Jesus, will you intervene? Will you talk to my brother for me and tell him he's not treating me right in this matter of a family inheritance? And Jesus said, no, no. I'm not going to do that. But Jesus gave him a warning. Stay in your Bible with me, verse 15. Notice what Jesus says. He gives him a warning. And the warning is this, beware of covetousness. Beware of covetousness. Covetousness. You've probably never heard a sermon preached on covetousness. I read an article a few years ago, and I've used it as an illustration, but I'll use it again A Roman Catholic priest was an older man, 70, 75 years old. And the Catholic priest says, I've listened in the confession booth to probably 50,000 different people come and do their confessions of their sin. And of the 50,000 confessions, there's one sin I have never had anybody ever one time confess in 50 years of experience. In fact, the article was, the sin I have never heard confessed. And then the Catholic priest went into it. He said, it's the sin of covetousness. It's as if nobody ever commits it. And yet, he went on to say, it's the 10th commandment. Why would the Lord put such an emphasis on on a a sin and put it in the Decalogue, the 10 commandments, and then nobody ever feel like they have ever committed it. The reality is, is that we don't mention it because we know it is so absolutely uh, extinct among us. We know that among us, every one of us probably are tempted to covet every single day of our life, particularly living in the materialistic American consumeristic culture that we live in. Every… Every sense is being tantalized by the world around us. I open one of these glossy, high-colored magazines, and it says, buy this, buy this, get this, acquire this. I watch television every seven or eight minutes. The commercial comes on, buy this, buy this. You won't be happy if you don't have this. Life is unfulfilling if you don't have this. And so, I'm just pummeled with this over and over and over, that life, it consists of the things that we possess, as the Lord Jesus Christ says here, and he warns us against it. In fact, don't, I won't turn there, but if you'll just mark in your Bible Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 5, do you know Paul refers to covetousness as Idolatry. Idolatry. There's not any Christian in this building would, would, would get a little wooden idol or gold or silver idol or something and bow down on your knees and pray to that thing. You'd say, oh, no, God condemns that. And yet the book of Colossians says when covetousness reigns in our heart that we have erected an idol, the idol to things, if you will. And the Bible tells us that covetousness gives birth to other sins. Why do people kill? Because they desire something so much they'll take a life for it. A burglary, for example. Why do people steal what belongs to other people? Because of the sin of covetousness in their life. Why is it that people often lie and don't tell you the truth about what's in the contract or they cheat in some way? They do it because of covetousness. Why is it that a man wants to take someone else's wife for his wife, or a woman seeks to seduce a man that is someone else's husband? Why do people do that? Because they covet. They covet. Did I give you the definition for covetousness? It's a greedy longing for more. Covetousness is a greedy longing for to always have more, to never be satisfied with life. Covetousness can involve things, but it can also involve experiences, which promotes adultery. For example, I want the experience of having another woman rather than just my wife. And so covetousness leads to immorality. Pornography. Why do men and women, but specifically men, view pornography? Because They're greedy for more, some experience that they are not achieving in their marriage relationship. And so Jesus warns us beware of covetousness. And then, not only in that verse is there a warning, you may want to write in the margin there a warning beware of covetousness. But then, secondly, there's a principle. That he gives us. And the principle is such a powerful, powerful principle. If you will get this in your life, this is a life changing principle, ladies and gentlemen. What is the principle? That life is not measured by how many goods a person has acquired in their life. God doesn't evaluate our life by how many things that we have in life. A man's life consisteth not, Jesus said, in the amount of goods that he's piled up and acquired throughout his life. A human life is not defined by the balance sheet of money, possessions, positions, and whatever. And in that phrase, think about it, Jesus absolutely refutes and condemns the consumerism of our age where we always have to buy more and more and more you've just seen the best illustration I can possibly come up with, with consumerism. In America, we call it what? Black Friday. And people go and sit out in lawn chairs so they can get a few dollars off of some new techno gizmo. People will have fights. You saw it on television. Every year, somebody gets assaulted. Somebody gets in a fight because of covetousness. I want that. It's the last one, and two women in a shopping center in New Jersey pounding each other's face to a pulp because there's just one iPhone left there, and they both want it. Consumerism. Consumerism. Now, you say, I wouldn't go that far. No, that's right. You just gotta, we, have, we keep it under control most of the time, right? But down in our heart, that consumeristic philosophy can just take over We call it consumerism. We call it materialism. We call it, and the Bible calls it covetousness or idolatry. There was a saying that was popular a few years ago. He who dies with the most toys wins. Is that really true? That was cool to say. That was hip. He who dies with the most toys the difference between men and boys is just the price of their toys, somebody said. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But is it really, does a guy win who has the most consumption in his life? Do you win if your house is bigger than mine? I read about a preacher of all things who he bought himself a Bentley, and then he bought his wife a Bentley, and it's the only Bentley in the world. Like, he bought the only one. It was a handmade car out of England. And I thought, boy, that really sends a message. Wow. And I'm not jealous because I don't have a Bentley. I'm going to have something better than a Bentley one of these days. In heaven, right? So, I'm just going to wait. I don't, you know, I couldn't afford a Bentley anyhow, but how did I get off on a Bentley? I don't I don't even have that on my notes here anywhere. So Jesus has this story in verse 15. Verse 15, don't buy Bentleys. Let me tell you the rest of the story here. He tells the story this man, and boy, this man has really done well in life. Look in verse 16, this man is blessed. He spoke a parable, the ground of a certain rich man. Nothing wrong with being rich, by the way. He's not condemning riches. He, we should celebrate it when God has blessed us. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. He's a very successful farmer, this man is. And look in verse 17, though. He is so he doesn't even have anywhere to store all of his, the products of his labors. And so... This man begins to plan what he's going to do. Now, here's what I want you to notice about this man. He's a very blessed man, but in verse 17 and 18, he's also a very selfish man. Boy, is he selfish. I counted how many times he said, I. Just read verse 17 with me. What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my goods. He said, this will I do, that's three eyes. I, number four, will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And so he's got what, about five or six eyes in there. And then if you go back and read it again, look in verse 18 or in verse 17, he talks about my fruits and he talks about my barns. And he talks about my fruits and my goods. And he, he then talks about my soul. And, or, and God then speaks to him about your soul shall be required of you. I counted it up. Eleven different times in two little short verses, he uses an I or a my. He is totally self focused. This man is totally self occupied here. In verse 18, notice what he says. This will I do. He doesn't include God in his plans. Do we make plans and never even think about what God would have us do? Do we, do we make plans and not pray? That's what this guy was doing. This will I do. God's not in his plans at all. Notice what else he does here. He doesn't even mention any other relationship that he has in life. What about his wife? What's his plan for her? What about his children or his grandchildren? What about his friends? No mention of anybody. It's all about him. Me, me, I, 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 me. A selfish man. Look in verse 20. You'll see what his goals are, and his goals are not very noble. In verse number, pardon me, yes, verse 19. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for you. And he said, Take thine ease. Okay, here's his goals. Ease, comfort, convenience, getting to do what I want to do, not be bothered by other people or their needs. Eat and drink and be merry, entertainment. Those are his four goals. There's nothing wrong with any of those. It's fine to have ease. It's fine to have comfort. It's fine to eat and to drink, and it's fine to be merry. It's fine to be entertained. But when that's your only goal in life, which it seems to be his, because he didn't mention anything else, then maybe your value system is all out of whack. And then look at verse 20 again, see what God said. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And then all of these things that you've lived for, and which you've provided, who are they going to belong to? So that night, his life ended immediately, instantaneously, and all of his plans were scuttled because God intervened in him. Look at verse 21. So is he. Okay, now we're going to apply the Scripture. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. A man who is rich in things, but a man who is poor in soul. Remember that phrase, rich in things and poor in soul. Rich in things, but spiritually impoverished. Because everything he lived for was gone, it was lost. Who shall these be? And so, God gave this man time on the earth, years to live. God gave this man money, treasure. God gave this man lands and farms. God gave this man abilities. He was obviously a very good and and, and competent farmer. And yet, he completely ignored the real purpose of life. Now, stop and look up here and think with me. Are you ignoring the real purpose for which, which God put you on this earth? I speak to your heart. I'm not shouting at you. I'm asking you a question. Look at all the things in life for which you live, and tell me how many of them will endure one moment, five minutes past your death. And if you're not thinking about that, boy, isn't it time to start this morning? This man was what we would call the materialist. He was the ultimate materialist, actually. Material possessions, he didn't own things. Things owned him, as somebody said. This man possessed all these things. He had all these pleasurable experiences, and he valued them as the highest values of life. But Jesus called that man a fool. He lived like this life is all, all that there is. The Miller Beer people say, you only go around once. No, I'm going to tell you, that's a lie. You go around twice. And when you close your eyes here, you're going to open them in eternity. And you're going to go around another time. This earth is just the first round. There'll be a second and if you live your life for the first round and ignore the second, you're gonna, lo- you're gonna be a big time loser, my friend. Hear me. Tony Bennett is uh, I guess he's still alive. I think he is. He's eighty some years old and still singing, I think. But Tony Bennett one of our most was a few years ago one of our most popular singers in the in the United States. And he had this song. And every time he sung the song, I would think, boy, that song is sending the wrong message. And the name of the song was The Good Life. The Good Life. And what he was singing about was really a testimonial to the the materialistic, consumeristic, this world type of lifestyle. And so I looked up the words on the internet the other day again Oh, the good life full of fun, and it seems to be the ideal, oh, the good life Let you hide all the sadness you feel. Ah, now we get to the truth of the matter, that we live this consumeristic, materialistic lifestyle because there's a hollowness inside us. And we try to pack life full of fun, and it seems to be the ideal. But Tony Bennett sung, it lets you hide all the sadness you feel. And since the fall of man, I don't like these psychological terms sometimes, but I think people, I think there is what the psychologists would call an existential unhappiness, an existential unhappiness, that after you've lived your life and married and raised your kids and going through life, still, if your life is not anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's an emptiness. There's what old Augustine referred to as that God-shaped vacuum in the soul. And you've tried and tried and tried to find meaning and purpose and and, and something that brings all of life together and makes it meaningful. And yet, there's a certain sadness and emptiness. And only the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ can fill that longing and give us the joy that we all seek to pursue throughout life. You say, well, what is the answer? Well, it's right here in this passage. Compare that man's philosophy to what Jesus is saying when he teaches us about a biblical or a Christian worldview. And that's every time I stand up here and preach, I'm trying to teach our people, you people, us. I'm trying to learn myself in my studies how to think Christianly. How to think like a Christian and not let the media and the world come along and press me into its mold and get me to think like it thinks. Because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And when the more I think like the world, the less peace and purpose and meaning I'm going to have in my life. And the more I have the mind of Christ, yeah, I'm going to be different from the world around me, but I'm going to have a joy and a peace and a sense of significance and meaning that I cannot find in anything this world can give me. In verse 15, Jesus said, we're to have different values. We're not defined by our balance sheet, by our salary and stub, by our net profit for the year. That doesn't define me or you, but the world will tell you it does. He says we're to be defined for, by different priorities. Verse 31, Going down. I didn't read it all. But he said, rather, I want you to seek the kingdom of God. You put the Lord first in your life. And then all these other things, they'll fall into line. They'll be given to you as God plans for you to have them, as you can handle them. And then he said, you not only ha- we not only have different values, and we not only have different priorities, we put the Lord first. Thirdly, we have a different time frame because this man lived totally and solely for this world, for the present, for the now, for the temporal. And we who are God's children ought to live with a longer time frame, with eternity's values in view. Do we live with eternity's values in view or do we buy in to all this culture is talking to us about and telling us. Well, I won't have much time on the other two points, but that's the first one. And I wanted you to see that what you and I, the philosophy that we have in life about material things, that our stewardship reveals that. Number two, or it's actually number six on my points, isn't it? The motivation for stewardship is very simple. Will you turn with me quickly to the book book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5? 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. What is it that motivates them people to live with eternity's values in view? What is it that causes a man or a woman to look at their time, their money, their possessions, their relationship in the proper way? What is it that could possibly motivate that? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 14, note this wonderful phrase. Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ is the motivating factor. What does it mean to be constrained? It means to be pulled along, if you will. What is there in my heart that could keep me going? and living life with the right perspective, to look at the possessions that I have, the money that I have, the talent that I have, the time that I have, to look at those things and to be pulled along toward a proper view. And he says, very simply, it's this. It's the love of Christ. It's love for the Lord Jesus Christ and gratitude for him that will keep you going, that will cause you to have the proper view of life. Back in 1992, we built this building. <clears throat> and I remember we had to raise about three and a half or four million dollars, which was a lot more money in those days than it is now. And it was overwhelming in a way. We'd raised all the money we could and saved for years, and we had gotten a mortgage, but we still needed to raise about three and a half four million dollars. And we prayed and we talked, and we had a number a lot of different people, some of you remember, involved in that project. And we chose a theme for that project, a slogan, if you will. Put it on all the little documents and pieces of paper and cards and, 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 and advertisements that we put out. And I thought of it this week. And here was the slogan that we used. Whatever a man believes in fully and loves devotedly, he will give to sacrificially. Whatever it is in life that a person believes Him fully, and loves devotedly, he or she will give to sacrificially. In other words, I don't get up during stewardship month here and put the pressure on and pull the hammer back as some people may have heard that I do. I preach to you the claims of the Scripture. I preach to you what the Bible says about our Attitude toward possessions and time and talent. If you can read your Bible and listen to me teach this to you and have no time to serve God through your church here, boy, that's okay. You'll have to answer to him for that. If if you can prosper and live in this world and enjoy everything you want, never give the Lord his tithe, go for it, man. Go for it. But as a Christian, we say we believe the book. And if we believe the book, then it's a settled fact. We love him because he first loved us. We sing, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. But stewardship goes beyond singing a song. It goes to, what does the Lord expect me to do with my time? my money, my possessions, my relationships. And it determines, it reveals really the deepest motivations in my heart. Lastly, turn to 1 Corinthians 4. Just go backwards in your Bible a few pages. And one very quick and final note here. The one requirement of stewardship. The one requirement, the one thing the Bible says above all others that is required in stewards 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards. Now, if you're a Christian, you're a steward. Good or bad, you're a steward. You are managing the time and the life and the talent and the treasure of the Lord that He, the owner, allows you to have. And what is God's requirement? That a man be found faithful. Faithful. The one requirement for the steward is faithfulness? Am I reliable? Can the Lord count on me? Am I dependable? Am I trustworthy? Am I loyal? When it gets down to the short rows, am I going to put Jesus first? Do I have integrity where my testimony as a Christian and my actions as a Christian come together and are consistent? Am I Faithful, loyal, trustworthy, reliable. The one requirement that God has for His stewards. Let me close and make this very, very clear. Salvation is not something that we achieve by trying to live in a godly manner or even being good stewards. We can't buy our way into heaven. We can't serve our way into heaven. You can't do enough things in your lifetime to merit salvation. Salvation is not something that we attain. Salvation is a gift that we receive. And we reach out our empty hands like a beggar does, and we accept the gift of salvation. D.L. Moody told a great story. I think I told it, but it's been 15 years or so, so I'll tell again. D.L. Moody talked about a man who taught a little boy's Sunday school class, just a small class, few boys. He so wanted the boys to understand that salvation is a gift of God that they couldn't earn it. That this man bought a a very nice silver, in those days, 100 years ago, silver pocket watch. And it was a time when people carried pocket watches, not wrist watches. And he went to his Sunday school class with his silver pocket watch. And he had his little boys lined up in the chairs in front of him. And he's teaching them about salvation being free. He takes the watch out of his pocket. And he offers it to the oldest and biggest boy in the Sunday school class, said Mr. Moody. And he said, here, son, I have this very valuable silver pocket watch. And I'd like to give this to you. And the boy just sat there. And... He didn't put out his hand. He didn't make any effort to receive it. He went to the next boy. Here, son, I'd like to give you this nice, very valuable silver pocket watch. The boy didn't move. And Mr. Moody said the teacher waited for a moment. No, no movement on the part of the boy. He offered it to the smallest little boy in the class, he said. Here, son, is a valuable silver pocket watch. And a little fellow reached his hand out, and he snatched it. He took it. And then the man said, now that's your son. You can take it. You can take it home with you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm making a point, and I love you guys. I want you to see it. He said to the first, the oldest and biggest boy they would offered it to first, son, why did you refuse it? And he said, well, I, I didn't think you were serious. I didn't think you were going to give one of us a something as valuable as that silver pocket watch. In other words, unbelief kept him from getting the gift. Is there someone here this morning and unbelief is keeping you from being saved? You don't really believe that God means what he says when he offers you salvation? The second little boy said, son, why did you refuse the watch? He said, well, I wondered what other, the other boys would think of me. I thought somebody might laugh at me if I reached out and you changed your mind. And the little boy didn't receive the gift because of peer pressure. He's afraid what somebody would think about him. And the little boy got the watch. Some, why did you take the watch? Well, I believed you, teacher. You offered it to me. I thought I'll try. And he just reached his hand out. And he deposited that watch in the empty hand of the little believing boy who didn't really care what anybody else thought. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.